0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. I want to talk about women today, because next up in Jesus' story is the story of his encounter with a sinful woman at a Pharisee's house, and then Luke's description of the women Jesus traveled with. One unique characteristic of St. Luke's gospel is the great respect he shows for women, starting with the infancy narratives featuring Elizabeth and the prophetess Anna. It continues with his genealogy, which mentions the women Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all as ancestors of the Messiah. Luke gives details about women who traveled with Jesus, as we will see today. Uh, So clearly, women are a key part of God's plan for this new church, this new project that he's beginning, whether they be active Martha's or contemplative Mary's. a distinction we also get from Luke that will come up later in the story. And of course, Luke talks about the greatest woman of them all, Mary. But today, as I say, we're focusing on the sinful woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee and the women Jesus traveled with. I'll start by reading the Gospel of Luke, starting in the 7th chapter and going on to the 8th. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was sitting at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, What is it, teacher? A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay he forgave them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Today I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace soon afterwards he went on through cities and villages preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been f- healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Chusa Herod's steward and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means So that's the gospel. And it starts with this beautiful scene that is like similar scenes told in other gospel stories. Usually they appear uh, closer to the passion in John and Mark and Matthew, I believe. But Luke has it right here near the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. We can picture the scene. Jesus is at some kind of fancy dinner and a most unwelcome guest arrives. I was about to say you can picture it as a homeless woman approaching a bishop at a fundraising dinner but it's worse than that actually it's the bishop having dinner with a few prominent people kind of trying to get to know a new catholic celebrity in town to see if he's really all he's cracked up to be and this woman comes in and starts weeping and carrying on and making a scene with a newcomer it's embarrassing well This was embarrassing also to the people involved, but not somehow to Jesus. The text says she was standing behind him at his feet, which doesn't make any sense to us until you realize that Jesus was doing what the Jews did and reclining at table. You can kind of picture him kind of leaning on his left, using his right hand to eat with his feet behind him. And that's where she was standing. This is especially a big deal in the ancient world because rules of hospitality and eating manners were so key, and with the Last Supper, they were about to become even more key. But the Pharisee throwing the dinner party is named Simon, and Simon shows all the kinds of reactions we might have. He's quick to judge the woman, and he's so self-absorbed he doesn't even notice the beautiful act of charity which is happening right in front of him. He feels proud of his high standards and having the best company at his table. He cares how he is perceived by the world in general and by devout Jews in particular, which is exactly what we are like. We're proud of our high standards. We're careful about the company we keep. Want to be seen with the best of people, the cool people. But what these manners really mean at moments like this is that we are small-minded simon made himself so comfortable with his own table rules that he was no longer able to embrace what is real when someone from the real world broke into his manufactured world he can't handle it his stage managed life and self-image won't allow it in fact at the very moment the woman is showing jesus's greatness jesus says she has already been forgiven But what is happening now is she's so overwhelmed with gratitude at Jesus's forgiveness that she can't hold it back. I don't know if you've ever been so overwhelmed by something that happened to you that it totally blows up your personal rule book. If you've ever tearfully thanked or sought forgiveness from somebody in public, or if you've ever found yourself unable to contain your emotion in front of your family or at work or whatever it is. But that's what's happening in this woman's life right here. The gift of Christ has been so powerful, she can't hold back her gratitude any longer. Her love is shameless. The full import of what has happened to her is too great for her to put limitations on it by politeness. Also, there's another awkward detail. We learn elsewhere that this jar of ointment is worth a year's wages. Think about that for a second. That's a lot of money, but this woman is a prostitute. So it's a year's worth of wages as a prostitute. So you can think of the perfume as representing not just something very expensive and precious to her because of its value, but it literally represents the money she made from a year of her sinful occupation. And this is what she's pouring out on Christ's feet. She's weeping so uncontrollably that she's wetting his feet while she smears ointment on them. And she comes up with the great idea of getting the tears off with her hair. It must have been an overwhelming scene. You can picture this beautiful smell filling the room and this weeping woman with her hair hanging down over her face and Simon staring on with a stony glare. And Jesus Christ, this person who was always riveting, kind of in the center of the whole scene. Jewish women keep kept their hair tied up, I guess, except for during the revelation, the unveiling at their wedding day or with their husband. Um, but here she is with her hair flowing. The fathers take her as a kind of symbol for the church, someone who was a sinner and now brought into Christ's uh, orbit. Or better, you can think of it as kind of a bridal analogy Uh, This is a woman whose hair is the way a bride's hair would be undone. And uh, this is exactly the kind of bride that Hosea spoke about in the Old Testament. This bride that's basically an adulterous woman who cheats on her husband and he's supposed to keep bringing her back. This is who we are with Jesus. This is who the church is with Jesus. This is who the people of Israel and now the people of God are with God. So Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. He doesn't say it out loud, he says it to himself, and Jesus surprises him because of course Jesus really is a prophet and much more, and he answers the thoughts that Simon has only thought in his mind. He reveals why the woman is behaving this way. He has forgiven her many sins. He tells the parable. Uh, that we heard, which is very telling about how God sees us and how God sees the world. Two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days wages and the other owed 50. Since they were unable to repay the debt, he forgave it for both. Which of them will love him more? That shows the character of God and the divine logic that we personally reject, most often, but which God embraces. Since they were unable to repay the debt, he forgave it. Wow, if you can't pay it, he will forgive it. That's pretty awesome. But what Simon says is also very telling. When Jesus asks which of them will love him more, Simon says, the one, I suppose, whose larger debt was forgiven. That I suppose speaks volumes. This is a cold, calculating, sterile man who perhaps has never cut anyone any slack, so doesn't know how people behave when one does cut them slack. At any rate, the Pharisee at dinner defines the woman by her sin and dismisses her. To him, she is a prostitute and can never be anything but that. But scholars who read the original Greek say that Jesus' words are almost like a poem here. He points out how stingy and petty his host has been by listing all the things you're supposed to do for a guest that he didn't do. This is a moment I've had at prayer many times where I feel put upon by something, by circumstances, and I bring it to God's attention. And I get reminded of all the ways I've failed to do even the minimum of my part in terms of the situation. More on that in a second. But first, he says this. When I entered your house, you did not give me water for my feet, which was a must for guests. You've been out in the sun all day with just sandals and dirty roads and uh, you get your feet washed as you come in to dinner. Well, Simon hadn't done that. But she has bathed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair, says Jesus. You did not give me a kiss, which is to say a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the shoulder, which you sometimes see in other cultures to this day. But she has not ceased kissing my feet since the time I entered. You did not anoint my head with oil. Again, this is a common courtesy, especially when you have somebody of prominence, like Jesus was, coming to your house. But she anointed my feet with ointment. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he turns to her and reinforces that her sins are forgiven. So why has the host been forgiven little? Because he was a great guy? Possibly. But it's more likely because he was unaware of his faults and so hadn't asked for forgiveness for much. You can look at this very incident in front of us as Exhibit A. The Pharisee wanted to have Jesus over, maybe to show how broad-minded he was, maybe to see if he could find a chink in Jesus's armor but he had him over while holding him at arm's length, not really welcoming him with open arms, letting him eat there, but with none of the niceties an honored guest should have. This is kind of the way we treat Jesus in our lives, isn't it? You want to be on his team, you want to be on his good side, but you don't want to embarrass yourself by making a big show of it or making it seem like you're one of these Christian types who's over the top in love with him. And so you kind of keep him at arm's length. The Pharisee probably felt magnanimous having Jesus there at all, like he was doing him a huge favor. Uh, but he also wanted to show that he wasn't taken in by this prophet and not going to give him the full treatment. Well, how does the woman behave toward Jesus? Clearly she's the one who we're supposed to act like, And she, as we've said, is the one who is willing to put Jesus first, to put it all out there, to not hold anything back, to be totally honest in front of God and man and all about where she stands. And Jesus refuses to condemn her. Instead, he frees her from her trap and finds a way for her to go forward in her life. She can't pay her debt, so he takes the loss on himself. And so the sinful woman becomes a model of worship, according to the catechism. This is one of several women, in fact, who Jesus will put forth as a model of the Christian life. We've already seen it in Anna. We've seen it in Elizabeth. We saw it in the woman in the well, but the catechism specifically mentions this sinful woman at Simon's house when it talks about contemplative prayer. Quote, contemplative prayer is the prayer of the child of God, of the forgiven sinner who agrees to welcome the love by which he is loved and who wants to respond to it by loving even more. So the forgiveness we receive should drive us to embarrass ourselves in our gratitude and pour all our energies out on God who has freed us and it should lead us to worship. So immediately following this story, we hear about the people Jesus is traveling with. And among them are his 12, his band of brothers, but also a band of sisters. We're told he went through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And with him were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is hugely significant. First, there's Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, which is extraordinary. She must have been a seriously impaired woman. We'll talk more about demons later, but clearly she was in a horrific state and probably a depressing, mind-numbing state on top of it. Also Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. We heard about the centurion slave who was cured in the last episode. Well, John tells a similar story about a royal official whose son was cured. And some of us speculated that maybe that's Chusa. Maybe it's Chusa's son that he healed. And that would make sense of why Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, is following him around. There are quotes many other women, a sentiment echoed in Mark. This is highly unusual for Jewish times. Frankly, it's highly unusual for our times as well to have these kind of two bands of men and women separately kind of following along together after Jesus. It certainly was out of keeping with the Jewish customs of the time, but it shows how Jesus feels about women. His project is not an exclusively male project and women have prominent roles from the very beginning. It's remarkable. In fact, that these women who are so different from one another are grouped together. Uh, they're different friend groups, they're different cliques, they're different social economic statuses, uh, and yet they're traveling together. It reminds me of when I used to go to daily mass in San Francisco. I went to um, I worked in the financial district, so I went to Notre Dame de Victoire, a French parish downtown. And it was uh, this kind of parish where you had wealthy French women and you had homeless people all at mass together and we're all there united around Jesus Christ who tends to minimize our differences because we all have the same goal, him. So women from the very beginning have had prominent roles but women of course have also been misused to some degree or another from the very beginning. We saw that in the story of the prostitute at Simon's house which by the way, Mother Angelica likes to point out why did everybody know who she was right away at simon's house it's as if they'd met her before but on this question of the misuse of women in history i have a few things to say because i must admit that i have always found it kind of strange that people complain that the church is anti-woman okay stick with me here compared to what i want to say Our 21st century secularist culture has opened up new avenues for women in the workplace, and that has to be celebrated. As St. John Paul II said, women have improved the workplace immeasurably. When people say women shouldn't work, i love to point out that Pope Francis is the first Pope in 60 years whose mom didn't work. Benedict's mom was a baker. John Paul's mom was a schoolteacher. Paul VI's mom was a noblewoman whose public service included chairwoman of the Women's League of Brescia. John XXIII was one of 13 kids in a family of sharecroppers where everyone worked. Many of our favorite modern saints had working moms, whether lace makers like St. Therese of Lisieux's mom, or a peasant farmer like Padre Pio's mom. So women working is great, but it's hardly a new innovation by secular society. Uh, it is great that there are new avenues opened up for women in the workplace. But what is life like for women now? Women feel increasingly unsafe in our culture. You're not allowed to walk alone at dar- in the dark if you're a woman. Uh, and I think it's because our culture has increasingly made women the objects of sexual pleasure, reduced women to being objects of sexual pleasure. The evidence is everywhere. Women in entertainment may be valued for their talent, they certainly are, but their sexuality is always also a factor. I know uh, I show my students pictures of women through the history of pop music. Starting from the 1970s, you see a double standard where men can dress however they want, but women have to dress sexually. If you compare Cher to Meatloaf, or Madonna to Phil Collins in the 80s, or Shania, twain to garth brooks even in the 1990s so you saw it on display in the super bowl where you had beyonce with scantily clad dancers and herself more scantily clad uh, performing alongside of bruno mars who i think was wearing a trench coat or a big coat at any rate and uh, chris martin from coldplay who was wearing a shirt and jeans these women have to dress very differently from men adam levine notwithstanding so is the church supposed to feel like these women are showing us that what true women's liberation looks like and that our treatment of our lady and the great women of the gospel and the sisters who are such a big part of the church today is something worse give me a break how do we get here You can trace the history of the sexual revolution by what each decade has mainstreamed and how that thing has changed the culture. The 1960s mainstreamed the pill, liberating sex from baby-making, and cultural attitudes to sex outside marriage quickly went from the winks and double entendres of one generation to the celebratory rock and roll anthems of the next from let's do it let's fall in love in one generation to why don't we do it in the road by the beatles in the next generation women were suddenly expected to do it all they needed to be mothers who did most of the work at home and also held down jobs and also had to be sexually available in the commercial that feminists eventually objected to the song went i can bring home the bacon fry it up in the pan and never never let you forget you're a man in the 1970s Abortion was mainstreamed and ushered in a new age of ironies. Sex was celebrated as uncomplicated fun on the one hand, but you had to kill your children for it on the other. There began this double think that American culture does. On the one hand, leading women were making sex a form of enlightenment and self-fulfillment in the joy of sex and the whole earth catalog in the 1970s. While On the other side, macho men from James Bond to Burt Reynolds were making sex a form of conquest and showing you're a man. Well, what happened? Epidemics of sexually transmitted diseases happened which continue to this day the 1980s mainstreamed the condom as something everyone talked about all of a sudden starting in junior high school or earlier and just as venereal disease epidemics were making sex more dangerous than ever safe sex was the mantra high schools told students to just say no to drugs and then gave them condoms so they could just say yes to sex. Music, videos, and John Hughes movies were targeted to adolescents with a kind of sex-obsessed adolescent approach to life. It's always been strange to me that our safety watchdogs enabled unsafe sexual activity, while on other issues, like power lines, we took a totally different approach. No one handed out rubber gloves to kids and said, when you're climbing trees near power lines, make sure to wear rubber gloves because they could kill you. But when it came to... Sexually transmitted diseases, which can ruin your life or kill you, uh, we handed out condoms. But sex was positioned as this non-negotiable part of kids' lives, which I find utterly bizarre. And girls felt the pressure. Boys were demanding sex, and their school teachers and all the enlightened voices in the culture were taking the boys' side. The 1990s mainstreamed Victoria's Secret catalogs, and pictures of women wearing very little began inundating homes even before the internet. Victoria's Secret debuted its underwear fashion shows and President Clinton was winked at by feminist supporters despite his treatment of Monica Lewinsky. Then in the 2000s, we mainstreamed pornography. The federal government had taken away sort of regulations on it in the 1990s just as the internet was emerging and so we set up pornography to be this big business in the 21st century where men mainly i know there's lots of women also but it's still mainly men began spending a lot of time online alone with their doors shut in the 2010s, we got the me too movement finally which was a very welcome change men who had been abominable mistreaters of women for decades were finally being called to justice. But it's still unthinkable to be against pornography, which treats women as sexual objects, but increasingly shows the woman as utterly subservient to men, existing for men's pleasure, and increasingly, according to Gail Dines, uncomfortable and not equal in this partnership But in the 2020s, there's a new attention on abortion, watching the debate over abortion is shocking. As Feminists for Life put it, with abortion so readily available, society is neglected to support women in their childbearing and childrearing, and we reserve the right to be treated as equals and to be mothers at the same time. We will not accept the current either-or choice. Abortion is a non-solution. It's outrageous to me that Planned Parenthood that won't help you at all if you keep your baby is treated like a hero and that companies are celebrated because they would rather pay to ship you out of state to kill your unborn children rather than see you have a child and threaten your commitment to the workplace. Mary Eberstadt's amazing book Adam and Eve After the Pill demonstrated with social science that the sexual revolution has had devastating consequences for men, teens, and children but mostly for women. But perhaps the greatest tragedy in the sexualization of our culture is the loss of purity? If that sounds prudish, let me explain. When we allow human beings to become objects of sexual pleasure, we are all diminished in each other's eyes. As women become increasingly fed up with the state of affairs and try to reclaim safety, at least in a world where they have to be constantly on guard, People call it a rape culture and other people complain that that's too much. People call it sexual toxicity and people complain that that's too much. Whatever you want to call it, it is a crisis of purity and a crisis of seeing each other for who we really are. Well, Catholics have an important message to add to all of this. Women's power isn't in their sexuality. It's in their humanity, just like men. You see it in how women are positioned in these readings. The man is the one who disrespects Jesus. The woman is the one who honors him. The man is the disbeliever. The woman is the believer. Love, not power or honor, is the highest of divine approbation. And the woman loves more, not the man. I think it's helpful to look at the Catholic track record alongside the secular track record as regards women in the 20th and 21st century. There are still women who accompany Jesus full-time, and it's worth seeing what they've done, and they've done a lot. First, nuns prevented evil from eclipsing the world in the 20th century. (laughs) I'll explain. Uh, Sister Lucia dos Santos stopped tyranny in the 20th century. Joseph Bottoms' 2005 essay in the Weekly Standard makes the point that the Fatima visionaries had as big an impact on world politics as anyone else in the 20th century. Because of them, Catholics all over the world prayed daily for the conversion of Russia, and their prayers were answered literally in 1989. But even before that, the message of Fatima spoiled the efforts of elite secular opinion that wanted to give communist atheism a chance. That never worked because Our Lady of Fatima had already enlisted every Catholic in the world in a spiritual battle against the forces of secularism, of communism in this case. Second, Mother Teresa. St. Teresa of Calcutta Calcutta, uh, defined Catholicism in the 20th century for many people by resetting expectations about how the poorest in our midst are to be treated and whether godlessness or grace define the world. And she still has that effect. Check out No Greater Love, the 2022 movie about her. But Mother Teresa is not the exception. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a poem after seeing women working in a leper colony. To see the infinite pity of this place, the mangled limb, the devastated face, the innocent sufferers smiling at the rod, a fool were tempted to deny his God. He sees and shrinks, but if he looks again, lo, beauty springing from the breast of pain, he marks the sisters on the painful shores, and even a fool is silent and adores. Mother Teresa did for the world what Sister Marianne Cope and the sisters on Molokai serving the lepers did for Robert Louis Stevenson, reframed poverty as an opportunity for faith and love rather than as a mark against God. Lesser Mother Teresa's did the same thing worldwide, teaching generations of school kids and immigrants how to think like a Catholic despite the world's expectations. From their classrooms rose civil rights leaders, pro-life leaders, and a tsunami of charitable workers. Second, sisters define the main lines of contemporary spirituality. More than men, for the most part? St. Teresa of Lisieux died in 1897, but her writing's impact was felt everywhere in the church throughout the 20th century. Her little way defined the Catholic daily vocation of doing small things with great love and led in a direct line to the universal call to holiness, which was the hallmark of Vatican II. Meanwhile, St. Faustina defined God himself for us. His name is mercy, as St. John Paul II later put it, referencing her. Consider the immense amount of catechesis contained in the briefest part of the Divine Mercy Chaplet that Saint Faustina gave us. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. To pray that is to learn that Christ's sacrifice is once for all, that sin is a tragedy for us as well as others, and that we can help heal it. Mother Angelica was a powerful writer of unexpected spiritual depth, But she belongs on this list of giants who shaped the faith in the 20th and 21st century because she dared give the Catholic faith a place in the most powerful medium of the 20th century, television. I watched her insights on today's gospel, in fact, in order to get ready for today's podcast. These women transformed how Catholics interact with our workplaces, our families, with God, and with the culture. They did way more than men of their time and each was defined by the vows they took and the way they followed traveled with Jesus. A museum in Ohio recently featured an ad by the Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Aberdeen, South Dakota. We offer you no salary, no recompense, no holiday, no pension, but much hard work, a poor dwelling, few consolations, many disappointments, frequent sickness, a violent or lonely death. The fact that many women joyfully took up that challenge teaches us something that would be much harder to figure out if they didn't. God is real, his will is the only true joy, and he awaits his friends in heaven. What will the next hundred years in the church be like? Pray for more sisters to come along and show us. But let me end by saying, I get it the church has far from a perfect track record with regard to women and i absolutely believe though that it's a track record that puts to shame the secular track record of the same time also we got to acknowledge that the secular world did a lot of good for women and i don't deny that so i don't want to demonize the secular world as regards women i also don't want to romanticize the church's role i know that conservative men that I've known can fall into the trap of kind of easily allowing women to do more things than we should. Uh, Women who are willing to serve are taken advantage of, and we have to be careful and counteract that. But women are not merely victims in the world. Women are sinners too. Men weren't the only ones who betrayed Jesus Christ. Women can take advantage of men as well as men taking advantage of women. I talked to my high school daughter before uh, as I was preparing for this podcast, and she wanted to make sure that I mentioned that women aren't so great after all, often. Uh, She's also irritated, she says, whenever she goes into a bookstore and sees a women's section but no men's section. She says she finds it condescending and patronizing that they think that the women need a special section, but the men don't. And I think she's on to something. So maybe the best message for women in our day and for men in our day is the message Jesus has in today's gospel. Don't look out on the world and try to see who is the source of evil in the world. Look in the mirror and beg God for forgiveness. So I'll leave you with Jesus's message at the end of the gospel. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace my message would be the same as his. Women are not perfect. Women are not victims. Women are not second best. Women are not helpless. Women are not a side note. Women are gifted. Women are loving. Women have done great good. And women are central to the story of Jesus' extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by ExCorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the Extraordinary Story. Visit us at excorde.org.